This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holiday Powers, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Delinda Collier about her new book, Media Primitivism, Technological Art in Africa. Welcome, Delinda. Thanks. Good to be here. Delinda, I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yeah, happy to. Um, I am, um, I guess if we're going back to early days, I was born on the West Coast of the U.S. in California and um, grew up kind of in the 70s and 80s there. And and we moved subsequently to Arizona. So I had kind of a mixed background. and it took me a long time to get to school, to college. I have to say, I kind of went through a meandering route for a while and um, and then finally uh, went back to school at, at around 25 and, and went directly to grad school from there. Um, you know, it I, I'm very much driven by ideas. And, um, and so that was when I had discovered that I could, you know, interact with ideas is when I got interested in, in college. And, um, and eventually got my PhD. And it was because, you know, I had been thinking a lot about my family history, which uh, my mom is South African. And uh, for a long time, uh, I was investigating what that meant and what my family history was on that side. And that's what really brought me to an interest in South African art was when I figured out that there were a group of artists and and a whole movement in South Africa um, on anti-apartheid art that I really began to be interested in art history and began my research there and and just in modern and contemporary art generally. So um, when I finally got to Emory University to do my PhD there with Sidney Casper, I was planning to do South African art or something around that topic when she encouraged me to kind of look elsewhere and expand my horizons. And uh, so at that point, I started to research 
African countries that had adopted Marxism-Leninism as an official state policy and, and to look at the art that would have been produced under those regimes. And, um, and it led me to Angola. And so my first book was about Angolan art and socialism and how those ideals of socialism um, proceeded historically into the contemporary moment and what parts of those those aspects of that art were preserved and which were discarded. And, um, and so my first book was on Angolan art and kind of following the history of some of those movements throughout the seventies and into today. And so this second book I think was following up from a lot of what I had started to investigate in the first book, which was how do, how does, how do media shape ideas and, you know, it occurred to me that contemporary African art is most often spoken about in terms of its content and its themes and hardly ever in terms of its medium. And, uh, and there are, I think, many reasons for that, that we, you know, that I go into in the introduction of this book. But, uh, but it seemed to me that, that especially in the contemporary moment where people were using many of the same media objects that we all are around the world, that uh, it was time to really look at that medium condition in Africa and to try to create a genealogy for media there uh, that didn't rely on this kind of West, um, you know, Occidental and, and Southern continents type of bifurcation. And uh, yeah, so that was kind of the overall aim of the book, but it comes from a kind of a long investigation into genealogies and histories and, and uh, movements. Well, so moving into the book itself, you, you have already spoken a bit about how you ended up in within this topic. Can you tell us overall what you would describe are the, the leading ideas of media primitivism? Sure. It was, you know, I was taking on three fields and it was in, in the introduction is when I do most of this work, the three fields would be African art history, um, art history generally, and media studies or media theory. And, um, and trying to braid together those three fields in a way that focused on medium. So what is medium in art history generally? What is medium in African art history? And what is medium in media studies? And, um, you know, focusing on why do those things, um, why are they so different in each of those fields? Why are the um, definitions of medium different in those fields? And what I kind of arrived at was this idea that uh, medium in art history uh is just a vehicle for meaning, right? And in media studies, it's much more prominent and it actually shapes the meaning in certain ways. Uh, but again, in African art history, it was more of an anthropological model where, um, you know, they have a very loose definition of medium or it's really doesn't concern them as much as the content or the, the social aspects of it. And so the primitivism part came in because there was a sense or there's an overall stereotype in media studies and in an art, art history generally that, um, that Africans are without mediation, that they are pure, that they, um, you know, 
that they have a much more direct relationship with the earth, that there's a direct relationship with ideas and spirituality. And, um, and along with that kind of naivete that's read into those things, um, it's said that, you know, or there's a stereotype that uh, they're always the anti-mediation. And so in media theory, for instance, Marshall McLuhan, one of the big figures of, of media studies, uh, would always position what was happening here in terms of its hype, you know, our hypermediation and television and radio and, and all of the ways that that was warping our mind, he would always pose that against the primitive African. And again, all of those things are in quotes, primitive being in quotes. Uh, but that was what he had to do to kind of create that theory was to say, okay, what is the unmediated person? And what is the person who doesn't have that influence over their mind? And, uh, and that's, so that's, that's, I mean, it's typical in media theory to always have that that kind of straw man for the argument, and often it's it's an African of some sort. Sometimes it's an Asian, um, and so I was getting to that notion of you know the reality of that. But then also, then what do African artists do with that? Not just with that history of the stereotype, but also how how can we build a genealogy for media within Africa that does attend to the indigenous, um, you know, articulations of, of philosophies of art. And so it was, you know, after kind of building the introduction about, um, you know, how these things have been stereotyped in these fields, then the rest of the book attends to exactly how Africans or African artists do this. And how do they identify their work? And what does the genealogy look like for them? And so in the chapters, and I tried to dispose of all the stereotypes and then go into um, what exactly the genealogy is being built within each of these media. Within your introduction, you lay out some of the really important uh, themes and concepts that you then talk about over the course of the book. Could you define some of those for us and tell us about some of these big ideas like the the fetish within your work? Yeah, the fetish, and this was something, you know, all of these, I have to say, primitivism, fetish, all of these things are really problematic terms. And so to um, a, a few people have asked me why I even named the book Media Primitivism, because primitivism itself as a word has uh, has come in and out of history as a really kind of a, a negative term. And and so fetish, primitivism, these terms, I'm doing, you know, I'm looking at those anew because I think there is unfinished business in those terms. And so it's a risk to take up those terms again because they are so racist. Um, but but it was my argument that that it, those still haven't been spent and they haven't been um, debunked in terms of um, media theory and um, some parts of art history. So, so fetish, you know, this is this was a moniker that was used um, in in the early days of exploration to sort of explain objects that mediated a relationship between European traders and African traders. And so at first it was just a pigeon term that, that everybody could use to talk about things that were being traded. 
And, um, and much later, William Peets, an art historian in the 80s, wrote a series of really brilliant essays describing uh, the fetish and its uh, nomenclature, where the word came from, um, and his argument that it comes from Portuguese fetiso, which means to make, you know, and that this was positioned by the Europeans as, as um, you know, a way to, or increasingly it became an accusation that Africans worshipped things that they made, which of course was very anti-Christian for the Portuguese. And, um, and so throughout though, I was building, I wanted to return to this idea of the fetish because it, it in a lot of ways still exists with us today in that uh, these objects that are in between kind of mediate our relationships. They, uh, they mediate large relationships between countries and cultures and peoples, but they're also very much present in our personal lives. So things like cell phones, things like computers, you know, these are, these are fetish objects to the extent that they are pigeon objects. They don't, they, they don't belong to any one culture. They belong to an in-between culture because they are mediating. And it's much more clear to see that, I think, today with computers because, you know, so much of our lives is, um, are lived with computers and, and phones now. Um, but, you know, and so it was, a, it was a good time to revisit that. But, um, but I try to make clear in the introduction that it's a, it's a racist term. It was one that was created um, initially to to communicate, but then increasingly throughout the the slave trade, it was used as an accusation of of people being anti Christian or also being totally illogical, and again unmediated, not not understanding what mediation is, and so on. And there was an important book by. Um, there was an important book written um, by Randy Matori um, that was revisiting the idea of the fetish, but from the from the position of Afro-Atlantic people. And and Matori goes through and builds a, a different genealogy for the fetish, and one that was really inspiring for me as I was building this genealogy. And that book came out right as I was finishing the introduction for my book. And it was really um, eye-opening, and uh, and so it changed the way I started to fit that into my introduction, uh, which was to say that um, Afro and, and he has a line in the book that says Afro-Atlantic people uh, know that they make their own gods, right? That and so that turns around that idea of you know that they unknowingly worship things. He's saying no that they they've always known that that people make gods right and that this is the activity and so um, to me that that was the turnaround that I needed to get to the rest of the book which was that um, these artists whatever they're doing within their work they're doing so intentionally and consciously so that's the fetish I don't know if uh, um, you know there are a lot of different terms that I take on throughout the the introduction. Um, I don't know if you want to get into those. Uh, Do you think there are other terms within that? Because you are pulling at really a, a dense series of, of histories and ideas and really pulling those apart in the introduction. Are there any that you feel like are particularly critical for listeners to understand um, yeah. before thinking about the rest of the book? 
You know, I think, yeah. So, so fetish was there prominently. It was there almost like a placeholder to discuss medium. And, and I could have chosen other objects. In fact, I had a, a, you know, a conversation with an architectural historian who's doing a similar project to mine, but in the field of architecture and her object, um, you know, her, um, kind of synonymous, synonymous object was the hut, you know, and because in architectural history, the hut is like the fetish. It's been, you know, the object that's served to be an accusation of like, un, you know, not well built things and simple things. And, um, and so she takes on the hut in her introduction. So I would say it's analogous to, to that. It could have been another thing. Um, but for me, the fetish was a way to get into the conversation about medium. And so, so starting on like page 13 and, and some of those, that section on medium, I talk about what medium is in each of these fields that I'm navigating and how it becomes institutionalized. And so, um, so where I wind up with the definition of medium is that, you know, we have the art historical um, aspect of it, which is a philosophical aspect of medium. You know, and this is um, so it's coming from aesthetics and, and philosophy uh, versus, you know, this uh, this very materialist description of medium in media studies. And and that's, you know, in African art history, we kind of vacillate between those two fields of art history and material studies. Um, and so, you know, um, so medium becomes a very important term, too. And media as either, you know, the plural of medium or media also kind of connecting to how we think of media in the mainstream, which is television and radio and things like that. Um, and so I'm trying to parse out those really carefully for, for the reader so that they understand where I'm coming from when I say medium. So you then move in your first chapter into a focus on film. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So film is, you know, and, and when I, when I started this book, I, you know, I, I looked at the span of objects that I was interested in and tried to locate them in terms of a, you know, kind of a constellation of medias. And in art history rarely takes on film because film history and film theory is such a field on its own. And so it was a little bit of a risk for me to put a film in this book. Um, But it really was one of my um, desires to take on things that have had a flashpoint within, um, within, you know, African art history or um, African studies and, um, and the medium study. So, um, this film also is just remarkable. This is um, Suleiman Sisse's uh, Yelin, which is uh, an incredibly important film and one that was um, finished in 1987, but it took him almost that entire decade to make. And Sisse uh, in this film kind of abandons his social realism that he had been doing during the 70s and early 80s and goes into and, and makes a film that's allegorical and takes on a 14th century tale. And this is, it's a fascinating film. It's gorgeous. And, um, and so what I tried to do in that chapter is to say that film is indigenous to Africa. And again, I think that's always been the question with film and Africa. 
um, is whether or not it's indigenous. And I say it doesn't matter because once film is there and it's recording the light in Africa, it's indigenous. And in fact, this film is is making a, a commentary, a very deep commentary on on the indigeneity of film because it's tracing its own genealogy to concepts of light that are indigenous to Mali. So Nyama is this concept in Mande culture um, that's that indicates energy or light or you know power. And it's very much thematized in Yelin. And uh, that title, Yelin, is, is light in um, Bambara. And so, um, so what Sise is doing is um, this very clever, you know, it is a, it's a moral tale and it's a parable that he's telling, but it's also very much pointing back to the medium of film itself, which is a medium of light. And, um, and so he places and, and, you know, even the way he was making the film, putting the camera in the middle of the desert without any kind of external uh, lights, for instance, he's, he's recording that light in Africa, in Mali, and um, allowing it to kind of shape the film instead of vice versa, right? Um, and so it became a really good way to enter into the conversation of what does it mean for a medium to be indigenous and when does that happen? When is it important that it happens and what kind of conditions have Africans and African artists um, done to kind of shape these media? And can you just elaborate a little on that question that you're highlighting about why that question of indigeneity is so important here? Yeah, I think, you know, for a long time, and, and it, I think a lot of these questions come from post-independent or um, anti-colonial um, writings and, and uh, discussions. So, uh, you know, most prominently in the 50s and 60s, but as early as the 20s and 1920s and 30s, um, African artists and writers and, and intellectuals were talking about what would you know what what types of media that they should engage in to to bring about a return to indigeneity right and so um so there was a lot of discussion about painting whether painting was an appropriate medium for anti-colonial uh, content because it came from the west um and so it was a concern it has been a, a pervasive concern for african artists but it was also because there were such stereotypes that were created when the West was stealing and collecting art from Africa. And so um, in the theft of a lot of these original objects like the Benin bronzes and, and others um, like that, you know, that, that collection, that initial collection, that initial uh, movement of objects off the continent then really powerfully shaped the idea of what African art was and what it wasn't. And so it wasn't painting, it wasn't anything, you know, that looked like Western art. And so both because, again, both because of the stereotype, but then also because of artists in Africa who really were interested in um, using indigeneity to to fight off the West or to kind of reject the West and to reject um, colonialism, this becomes a really fraught question on both sides. And, um, and so uh, 
and I, I think it still exists today. You know, people all the time ask whether, um, you know, in our field, I think in African art history, there's there's a longstanding kind of unspoken rule that that certain things are are inappropriate to study and um, and other things you need to you know kind of do your field work to uh, get to the real Africa, the quote unquote real African art. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. I mean, yeah. it it raises all of these incredibly important questions that um, I think come up certainly with students in classrooms, mm-hmm. but that you can also parse within the larger literature. And so I think your your way of approaching this question of indigeneity is um, is really important, but also really thoughtful. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's, it comes from my own kind of trajectory in the field and, and having <laughs> come up against some resistance in what, what I've wanted to study. But, um, and I always tell the, the story of one of the first um, pieces that I wrote, or I don't even remember if it was a re- reaction to a, a piece I wrote or if it was at a conference, but somebody had made the poke about um, those of us who sit at desks on our computers um, studying African art <laughs> as if, you know, that wasn't good enough. Right? And, and that, that stuck with me because I'm like, Oh, you know, that's, that's the way we are taking in the world these days. Right. Um, so even in my first book and in the introduction, I, I say in my introduction, I first came across these images sitting at my desk in Atlanta, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> surfing the internet, because I think it's important to say that it's, it's true. It's true that, um, you know, and it's true that field work is something that not only is getting harder to do because there are less funding structures um, for that, but also is that the appropriate way for us to think about African art as this separate field from ours and that um, that exists elsewhere, you know, so I, so that's the other aspect of medium that I talk about throughout the book is this idea of an elsewhere and over mm-hmm. there, you know. And this big space between us that that just doesn't exist anymore. It just if I can WhatsApp my artist friend in Zambia, you know, and have them respond in seconds, there is no field of African art, if that makes sense, you know. And so mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about it in a way that that pays attention to that, but then also respects that there are huge differences and there is still that geographical space. It's just that we're experiencing it in a totally different way. So you then move in the second chapter into a focus on electronic sound. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So sound is, is an interesting field. Um, and I'm, you know, I teach and work at an art school and we still have a, a, a department of sound art. And, um, and so it's a very small field, but one that I find fascinating and, and, um, and also one that 
had, you know, its own genealogy pretty clearly spelled out as coming from, you know, a set of French intellectuals that were working with electronic sound in the 1950s. And, you know, in, um, in the early 2000s, there was an article that was written about Khalim al-Dab, who uh, was an Egyptian artist, and he just recently passed away. He was very old when he passed, but, um, you know, declaring him actually the first electronic sound musician or sound artist. And, um, and this caused a kind of a wave in the field, you know, because everybody was, was now interested in who this person was. And, um, and this was, you know, because it was really upending this long, um, this long history of, of a French um, genealogy to sound art that was very modernist, very much about isolating a pure sound, much like, you know, we talk about Mondrian or other modern painters as isolating colors or, you know, um, or, you know, bringing about a purity that was without representation. So a pure experience of the medium without the representation. Um, that was very much how sound was being discussed until very, very recently. So, um, so with Khalim al becoming like the center and kind of becoming the, the, uh, father figure now of this field, um, what would we do with that content? Because his content or the way that he was creating sound, uh, and he was very clear about his own history and his own genealogy that he was creating. He's, you know, very decidedly saying this is coming from Egypt and this is a kind of a, a practice of sound that we've had all along without the electronic aspect of it the idea that sound can be detached from its carrier or its medium is something that trance is all about, you know, and that, um, so, and so his first gesture to go to one of these czar ceremonies, which is an all women, um, kind of a healing ceremony, you know, where people get together and they kind of get into these ecstatic states and, uh, the person leading, um, the person leading the session will heal the afflicted person, right. With sound. And, um, and it's very much said that this person is possessed by another person's sound or energy or, you know, vibration. And so uh, that is what, you know, he's, he does his first electronic piece based on a recording that he took, I guess, quote unquote, you could call it in the field, right. Because he went from his radio station to um, this other neighborhood and um, recorded this and brought it back to the radio station and then fiddled around with the sound and kind of had it bounce off the walls and, and do different reverb effects. And, um, and because of that post-production aspect, this is what, you know, people call the first piece of purely electronic sound. So, and he's a musician and there's a, a long-standing kind of, um, there's a long-standing debate within the field of sound of how much it is or it isn't uh, connected to music. Yeah. So how much is sound detached from its carrier? And, and, um, and I get into that history of, of Egyptians uses of, of um, floating sound or, you know, detached sound and, um, and this long history of electronic sound, but it was also just a fun story to write because, because um, Ildub came to New York in the 50s when, you know, John Cage and, and Martha um, Rosler, all of these artists were in that milieu. And 
and he was there. He was with them. And of course, just like so many other, you know, non-Western or non-white um, people who have been written out of histories or just have never been written into the history, I think is a better way to put it. Um, you know, he was forgotten, but he also, it was because he also rejected that, you know, I think there was a part of him that he wanted to return to, to music and to the composition and to the entire symphony. And he didn't really until, you know, the few years before he died, he didn't really think that that, uh, those experimentations were that important, you know, and I think it wasn't until he realized that, that it had shaped so much or that what he was doing was so much similar to and prior to, to um, the sound art in, um, in the 1950s that he realized that these were really important pieces. So he worked with some scholars to kind of get them re-recorded and, and um, distributed. So it was just a fun story to write too. It was one of my favorite chapters. After that chapter, your next chapter continues with sound, but then moves into songs. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So continuing with this relationship between sound and the song or sound and music, um, you know, what is a song? What really makes a song a song? It's, it's It's a recognizable melody. It's a line within the song. And that becomes kind of key to... Uh, the other subject of this chapter, which is um, intellectual property. And so, and the difference between a folk melody and one that's copyrighted or some one person's melody. And um, this comes up in this, another pretty famous case of um, the song that becomes the lion sleeps tonight, which all of us know, and you'll probably get it stuck in your head after this. Um, But this, this, song that was originally written by um, Solomon Linda, who was a mine worker in Johannesburg in the 1930s. And he was a part of a band or a part of a singing group, a choir group that was, um, you know, these were, these were kind of comp- competitive choir groups that, uh, that formulated, it was a culture that formulated around the mines. And so it was like these all male groups coming from the villages, the working villages um, but also choir music from Zululand, from, you know, the Eastern Cape and other parts of South Africa. And, um, so it was recorded, um, under Mbube was the original name of the, the tune that was recorded. And it was, um, one of the earliest recordings of, of black music in South Africa. So it, it also, this chapter goes into early recording history of, of you know, the music industry in South Africa, and it was recorded and got into the hands because this is the early days of world music. And so these records circulated around the world and it got into the hands of Pete Seeger. And he, you know, the famous folk singer, the leftist um, socialist folk singer, and he, um, and he sang it, you know, he took it and he ad- adapted it and sang it. And then a bunch of other people, you know, it's so it's the story of how this one seed tune kind of gets picked up by various people here in the U.S. and then ends up as this very famous, most recorded song, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, and its story through, you know, Disney um, taking it for their production of Lion King and, and all of those things. And so the, the chapter um, takes takes this history on through... Um, a sound artwork that was done by 
um, a couple of South African artists who um, who did a sound installation using uh, various snippets of all of the versions of this song. And they programmed um, a computer program, which is Max MSP, which is a common digital programming uh, platform. And they programmed it to take all of these pieces of the song and kind of uh, find self-similar aspects of it until it returned to the original version. And um, in a pretty, you know, elaborate <laughs> act of programming and, and um, collection. And uh, Julian Yonker, one of the artists, um, he, he took, you know, he found all of these uh, pieces by downloading them over torrent networks, which are these, you know, file sharing networks. And, um, and those were built very specifically to bypass intellectual property and copyright. And so, so it's about the copyright, it's about song, it's about um, the folk melody, and it's about the family of Solomon Linda and um, the fact that he died very poor. Um, he sold the copyright for that song for, for a very small amount of money. And, um, and so it was because his daughters brought this lawsuit against Disney that it finally came to light this entire history and, and, and they won the case. So it was a pretty important moment for, uh, for copyright law. But yeah, it's a very complicated story, but one that, that tries to identify when something becomes recognizable and thus owned. And, um, and in the case of South Africa, this history of intellectual property aligns perfectly with land theft. And when um, the South African government starts to take land from natives and, um, and rewrites the laws in ways that dispossesses them. So, um, and so these, you know, these movements are happening at the same time. The next chapter then focuses more on location and installation. Mm -hmm. Can you Tell us about that chapter and the the piece, the central piece that that chapter revolves around. Yeah, so this central piece was um, by James Webb, and it was, um, you know, it was a um, it was a piece that he worked on for a long time, um, uh, the Black uh, Black Passage, and um, and it was you know inspired by a few things that he told me. It was. Uh, it was Black Orpheus or the Orpheus story of Greek mythology, um, uh, but also mining culture. Um, and then visually, um, visually it was inspired by Malevich's, Kosmir Malevich's uh, The Black Square painting from 1913. And, um, and so visually, you know, if I can describe it quickly, it's, it's an installation. This is James Webb's installation. You walk into a tunnel that's, you know, about 15 meters long and, um, and it's black. It's totally black inside. The only light that, that obtains in the, in the um, passage is at the very end where there's a set of, um, of uh, speakers, you know, very large speakers um, on casters, on wheel casters, and it's backlit. So all you see is the light coming from around the back of the of the square. So the black square then becomes those speakers at the back. And those are playing very, very loudly. 
um, the recording that he took of a mining elevator descending into one of the deepest mines in South Africa, Western Deep. And, um, and, and it's very loud. And so you get the sense, you know, or he's trying to amplify that effect of being in an elevator in a mining elevator, which very few of us are going to ever hear or be a part of, right? Because this is an intensely um, a difficult job that people are doing in South Africa, and they're still doing that, um, where they descend, you know, a mile down into the ground to work out gold. And, and so this, this, you know, this entire setup becomes a discussion of, um, you know, the mine, the history of mining in South Africa and the ways in which it's being portrayed for the rest of the world who doesn't do that work because it's such intense work and it's such a, um, a history and it maps so easily for James Webb onto the story of Orpheus descending to the underworld and coming back, you know, and, uh, retrieving the, the, the desired object. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's an installation art work. And, and I do talk about the, you know, the history of installation art, which is a mixing of, of, of sound and image. And so this is in a way kind of expanding beyond just sound and just image that I've talked about in previous chapters, but talking about the combination of those things to, to create an experience. And in this way, a hyper mediated experience of, of the mind and writing that we, you know, and by, by saying we, you know, I do that on purpose, the we that never goes into the mind. And James Webb is a white South African. So he very much understands that he isn't the we that goes to the mind in South Africa, because that was very pointedly um, forced upon the black laboring male body in South Africa historically. And so part of what he understands of this is that this is an overcompensation. And so this very loud um, experience that he's trying to get um, the viewer, the experiencer to, to um, take part in is that overcompensation of the representation of the mind, right? Because that's impossible. It's impossible to represent the mind. And so it also goes into the, the attempts historically to do that, which is like photographs of it, films of it, um, but since there's a lack of light down there, it's been historically hard to take pictures. It's also, you know, not allowed because companies don't allow you to take pictures down there and they don't want people to know the conditions. And, and so it does talk about the limits of what we can represent um, and the limits of empathy when we talk about, you know, workers and being aligned with workers. Um, it talks about the limits of that even. Um, and so, yeah, um, very much takes on that history of of a moment with Malevich's painting where he declares representation is, is almost dead, right? By putting this black square up and saying that all representation is for luxury, you know, the bourgeois class, and, and we ought to um, eliminate all representation. In chapter five, you then move into electricity and energy. Do you want to tell us about that chapter? Yeah. So, so again, um, you know, following on the past chapter, talking about representation and those things not being enough for, for things, we move into this um, discussion of a piece or a set of pieces by Jean Kantambayi Mukendi in Congo. And he's an artist who um, 
who found his way to art through the field of electronic engineering. And his father was an electronic engineer um, and his mother was a secretary. And both of them worked for the mines and um, in Congo. And Congo, the story of mining is much the same as it is in South Africa, where it's um, intensely exploitive and has been um, this, the cause of, of countless lives and, um, and traumatic histories. And so Mukendi is, you know, very interested in taking that history back for Congo and, and beginning the work of, of repairing and healing from those histories. One of the things that he started to do, and one of the reasons he started to make these installation pieces, or kind of sculptural pieces, I guess is a better way to put it, was that he was teaching people around him how to safely hack into the electri- electricity grid in Congo. Because in many places around the world, when people can't afford to pay, uh, to pay the state or to pay state entities to hook them up with electricity, they just simply, you know, hack or put their, you know, put their wires into the system themselves. And, um, and it's dangerous, obviously. So what he was doing was to say, you know, this is how you do it carefully this is how you do it safely so he's essentially teaching his neighbors about voltage and how to ground something properly and um and all of the different permutations of how you can um, wire something to something else uh, but then in the process becomes um you know more deeply interested in the conceptual issues around energy and how it's produced and what that means and um, and he does all sorts. He's kind of this math whiz. He does all of these calculations about um, people's access to electricity seems to map exactly onto uh, their lifespan. And he calculates people's lifespan by their access to electricity, you know, and shows that these things are all related, you know, and they all um, speak to the failure of the state after colonialism. They speak to the post-colonial condition in Africa in many ways. And so he's also saying we need to return to a different type of energy, that one that takes into the account the human, one that doesn't extract but instead produces and, and is respectful to human bodies and human people. And, um, and so a lot of these machines that he was building um, around 2010 were, uh, you know, he would show, he would have food in jars, for instance, um, decomposing and producing their own electricity from the decomposition and wiring those and showing the effects of those and um, really getting to like this organic and again, indigenous understanding of energy, you know, something that was closer to the earth, closer to the people and less about, you know, going and pillaging and taking out from Africa. And so, um, you know, in more recent work, he's, he's poked fun at um, Tesla and, um, um, has built, you know, wire models of Tesla cars because he's also really interested in how uh, what he calls the greenwashing movement of how, you know, battery powered cars are said to be the kind of future of clean energy. But he's saying, you know, it still relies on extractive economies of lithium and um, and those are just as destructive as as these other economies. So. Um, so he's an interesting artist, one that's still kind of um, active on the circuit, but um, but doing just really incredible things with, again, not representing electricity, but actually using it and showing it and having it course through his pieces. 
The book then comes back to digital film after starting with film, you end with digital film. Can you yeah. tell us about that? Yeah, uh, this is um, a film, um, uh, Pumzi, that was that was um, directed by Wanuri Kahiu and um, and first kind of shown on the circuit in two thousand nine, and and it was you know it's a short film. It's about uh, I think twelve minutes long, and um, and it's interesting because again I, I think to a certain extent it's pretty clear what the film is about. It's about um, you know, it opens in this um, history or this museum of natural history. That's clear that, uh, and it makes it clear with the shots that that um, the world or the alive world or you know the natural world is dead, and that everybody's kind of living in these pods. And it's, it's so it's futuristic, but it's also dystopian the way many you know science fiction films are. And, uh, but it's set in Africa, it's set in East Africa and it's, you know, um, Kahiu herself is, is Kenyan. And so she's really setting it in her own place, in her own country. And it becomes also a parable and a moral tale of what happens when you, when you, um, expend the earth's resources and you don't care for it. And it follows the story of a young girl who, um, who leaves the pod to go save the earth, essentially, to go save the seed. Uh, and, and so it's very much representational. And, you know, for a while, I, I, I debated whether to even include this film, because it is so thematic, but then realized, you know, that this is um, in the age of ubiquitous media. And by that, I mean, all of us are, you know, and I do mean the majority of the earth now, um, are using digital media for communication and representation in this age that we're living in um, it gives way to an extreme amount of content right we talk about content all the time content producers content you know providers and things like that again that seem to disappear the entire apparatus of how those things are delivered which is through you know fiber optic cables and internet systems and and all of these really intrusive and earth <laughs> taking you know earth they're they're resource heavy right um server farms um we talk about how much energy you know um streaming films take i think there was a huge topic about that at the beginning of the pandemic that netflix was was um taking more energy than most countries a lot of small countries so um so it talks about a little bit about that, but then also just the, the, the history of the green movement in Kenya and, um, and various historical figures who attempted to save forests there and the Mau Mau Re uh, rebellion and, um, and a lot of that history there, the history of the environmental movement in Kenya and, um, and, and winds up kind of discussing light and digital light again. To, to bring us back to a full circle from Yale in the first chapter on um, filmic light. So now we're into digital light and, and just winds up kind of almost like a plea to, to pay attention to these things. And then the afterward goes into that, which I was writing, right. As, as we all shut down into the pandemic. Right. And, um, and it was becoming clear how fraught our world had become in many ways. So, so it was a, um, 
a kind of a low note <laughs> to wind up on, but also one that I think for Kahiu, who's so committed to environmental issues and to empowerment, especially of women and girls, uh, that was also a call to action in a way. And I mean, at the end, within your conclusion, you you do also address the that fraught moment, but the that sense of everybody being so interconnected. Yeah, exactly. And that, you know, there was, I think that, you know, for me, I had experienced such a powerful, you know, realization that all of it, you know, the same way that we all are connected through digital networks, we are all connected through disease, you know, in quite Mm -hmm. a literal way. I was watching as one country after another, you know, was going through exactly what we were going through and just seeing on the television, again, a very mediated experience, but uh, seeing everybody wearing the same masks as I was and, and that we were all going through this together and, and probably because of the same networks that we all shared. Like there is no, we are one species, right? And this is something that Kahiu talks about quite a bit in her in her chapter. Is this, uh, or or in that chapter that I wrote on her was um, cross species love. You know, what does it mean for a human like the protagonist and Pumzi to care for the seed as if it were her own child? You know, and so a cross species love that's required, but also one that caused the pandemic arguably, right? Um, that we can't think of ourselves as, as kind of the lords of the earth and that we're here to extract things and, and we're here to consume things, but we're, but instead we should think about these kind of old ideas of the ecosystem and, and cybernetics. I discussed cybernetics at the end of that chapter too. And um, some of those early arguments that humans and, and systems are the same and, and we ought to, um, act that way, you know. Well, Delinda, we have taken up a lot of your time. This can you tell great. us just before we before we sign off, can you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, I've been in recent months working on cyber or uh, crypto cultures and um, you know, to a certain extent NFTs, but I know that's a little bit of a, a, a fraught term for a lot of people, but but just different ways of creating artwork, but also of networks through crypto um, cultures and and connecting even crypto cultures to cultures of the Afro-Atlantic and uh, to various ways of of um, obscurity and hiding, but also of, of creating networks that sustain and um, and help one another. So, yeah. So I, you know beginnings of projects but little articles here and there on that oh, that sounds wonderful well delinda thank you so much for joining us thank you this has been a pleasure take care